lot of stuff I want to get into as we, as we wrap up chapter 3 and 4 of Hebrews. And there's a pretty big concept that we tried to wrestle with over the course of the week. Um, but I want, to, I want to maybe draw our attention to that in a little bit of a different way. So the kids, you have a handout, and it's dealing with uh, Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14, where some spies went in to explore uh, the Canaan land that God had promised to his people. And so that's a big part of the story that we're looking at today. So kind of keep that in mind as we go throughout this morning, kids. But chapters 3 and 4 talked about the idea of rest, This the rest, that God promised this idea of rest to his people. And uh, if you don't know what that means, that can be a little bit confusing, especially as he gets into chapter four and starts talking about Sabbath. Our tendency might be to just to restrict rest to the Sabbath rest and think that, oh, well, the rest that he's talking about is just, I have to take a day off from work every week and rest and uh, sit around on the couch and recover. But that's not exactly what he's, what he's talking about. It's actually a bigger concept than that. And so, um, I would like for you to uh, to look up on the screen. I've got a definition of rest that we're going to work out throughout the course of this morning. It is this. Rest is when the beliefs in our heart and actions of our lives line up with God's promise. Rest is when the beliefs in our heart, the beliefs being our faith, the desires of our heart, the ambitions of our heart, the... the uh, uh, adoration of our heart, all of those things, when the beliefs in our heart and the actions of our lives line up with God's promise or God's promises, then we are at rest. We're at rest with God. We're not at odds with God. We're not rebelling against God. We are are with God as we're supposed to be. We're in relationship with God as he designed us to be. And so this is is kind of the idea for rest I want to work out over the course of of this morning. But to do that, we, we really need to break down several parts of this definition to, uh, to get a good understanding. So we're going to be jumping around chapters three and four, as well as bringing in some other scriptures. But we need to talk about beliefs. We need to talk about our heart. We need to talk about our actions and obedience and God's promise and all of this stuff to really get an understanding of what rest is. But we've talked before about belief, how belief, belief is leads to obedience. Belief leads to obedience. And when we hear that word obedience, we tend to react a little bit because we don't like anyone telling us we have to obey something. But belief always leads to obedience. This is a general principle that's true in all of life. Belief leads to obedience. Our beliefs lead to our actions. When we have or try to have obedience without belief, when it comes to rules and standards, that is religion. So obedience without belief is religion. And that is what a lot of the people that the author of Hebrews is writing about may have been dealing with, what they dealt with in the Old Testament. And what we see around us a lot today is obedience without belief. A lot of religious pursuit, but not true life-changing pursuit of God. Belief leads to obedience. Belief leads to action. And there is no such thing as belief or faith without obedience. There's no such thing as belief or faith without obedience. We are obedient to what we believe, whatever that may be. 
So we are in our lives obedient to what we believe. And whatever, whatever it is that we believe, then that is how we behave or that is how we act. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just whatever our actions are, whatever the way we live our lives is, that is obedient to our beliefs. Because our beliefs lead to our actions. And we rarely, if ever, do anything that doesn't line up with our beliefs. Most of the time, everything we do, the way we live, the way we act, the way we go about our day-to-day lives lines up with something we believe. That doesn't mean we have the right beliefs. It just means that our actions are lining up with our beliefs because that's how we work as human beings. So our, our obedience then is an honest indicator of what we truly believe. Our actions, what it is we're obeying when it comes to our beliefs, are a good indicator of what we believe. And you may be thinking, oh great, then that means I believe a lot of bad things. That's awesome, actually. It's awesome because this becomes a great tool for us to be able to look at our actions and what that means we believe in our hearts and we can start to let God address our hearts and change our hearts so that we start to develop the right beliefs in our hearts and have a different outcome in our actions. So if there is something that doesn't line up, it's not an opportunity for condemnation, it's an opportunity for illumination. God wants to shine his light on it so that we can get it right. So our, our, our obedience, whatever we are obedient to, is an honest indicator of what we truly believe. So if there is any wrong action, if there is any disobedience in our lives, we shouldn't just focus on the behavior, which is what we tend to do. We tend to look at what we would, what we would call sinful behaviors and try with all of our might not to do that sinful thing. But the sinful behavior is not really the point at all. It's just a symptom of a deeper issue that has taken root in our hearts. So somewhere in our hearts, we have a belief that now that it is rooted and established in our hearts has produced this action, whatever that action is, good or bad. So if we want to address the action, if we want to address the behavior that's causing us problems, we have to address the thing that that behavior is obedient to, which is a belief. So we have beliefs in our heart that are driving our behavior. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So here the author is actually drawing the two ideas together of belief and obedience. He says, to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed, right? God swore that those who disobeyed him would not be able to enter his rest, to enter the promised land, to enter Canaan land, because they were disobedient to him. But then he says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So which is it? Is it unbelief or is it disobedience or is it both? The only way to enter God's rest is belief that works itself out in obedience. Belief that works itself out in obedience. Galatians 5, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. 
Through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. In other words, something that has not yet taken place. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. This is Paul's reference to the Old Testament law. He talks about, about the, he refers to the circumcision, when he's talking circumcision, he's talking about the old covenant or the old law. So he says, in Christ Jesus, that doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you? from obeying the truth. Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So in other words, it's not just faith by itself that matters. It's not just faith in God or that God exists, but that faith actually has to express itself in love. Paul probably referring to the two greatest commands that Jesus gave, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Faith that counts is faith that expresses itself in love. So we see that rest is belief that works itself out in obedience. In fact, this is actually the great commission that Jesus gave us. This is what he told us before he ascended into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations so what we're passionate about here at 6 8 Church is making disciples, helping you become more like Christ, disciples who look like their teacher, Jesus. I'm not your teacher. Uh, Jesus is your teacher. I'm trying to teach us all Jesus, myself included. Disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the commission we've been given from Jesus to, to be disciples who obey his commands. And like we've already said in this series, belief isn't just an idea, an intellectual assent that we agree with, but it's an actually a demonstration in our lives. Belief isn't just an idea, it's a demonstration. We have to demonstrate our beliefs. And if we say we believe something, but it's not demonstrated in our lives, we believe something else. Which brings us to a problem. What do we do when our actions tell us our beliefs are wrong? What do we do when we're living our lives and as we go out throughout the course of our lives in the week to come, we do something with our lives, our action in our life tells us if this is true, if this is a true statement that the authors laid out, that our beliefs lead to our actions and I have this action, it must mean that there's something wrong in my life. What do we do when our actions tell us we have the wrong beliefs? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active. This is not just a history book. God does not just speak in the past tense. God's word is alive. God is presently, actively speaking, even as we're gathered together in this moment, everyone in this room, if they ask and want to hear from God, they can hear from God because the word of God is alive and active. So we have right now this tremendous opportunity to hear God's words. The word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints 
and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God wants to bring illumination to the darkest beliefs in our heart. The word of God is alive and active. It penetrates even to the point of dividing soul and spirit. Who knows the difference between soul and spirit? That's the point. (laughs) It's very, very closely connected. It's hard to see what, what the difference would be between soul and spirit, right? To the point of dividing joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. This is what God's word does. God's word comes into our hearts and in the darkest parts of our heart, it comes in and starts dividing out and cutting up the things that aren't supposed to be there. And then, and then what it does, because nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word comes in and lights up that thing that's in your heart or in my heart, in our hearts, that is keeping us from full belief in God and his promises. So this is what God's word wants to do in our hearts even this morning if we give him permission. But we have to decide, do we want to let God do that? We have to decide, as the author says five times in these two chapters, today, if we hear his voice, will we harden our hearts? He mentions this word today five times and and that phrase today if you hear his voice three times in these two chapters as he's quoting from a psalm, Psalm 95. Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. There's something important about today. Something important about today to the author. The author seems to place a great deal of importance on this day that we're living right now. He will later in the book, later in the letter, talk about the day, a day that is coming, that is not yet here, but he spends most of his time and attention in the letter dealing with today. Today, if you hear his voice, there's something important about today. And he says, today, if you hear your voice, you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Some of us in this room might be hearing God's voice speak to our hearts right now. There may be something God is wanting to say to us that we've never let him say. He's wanting to address something in our hearts, in the deepest parts of our hearts, and he's starting to come in and he's starting to shine the light of his word on it and he's starting to illuminate it and it makes us uncomfortable. And what we do at this moment, this is a very important precipice in our lives because what we do has everything to do with what our faith looks like in the future. Do we become the people whose hearts continually be softened and get turned into a heart of flesh where over time as we are in experience with God and his word and his spirit, his word continues to soften our hearts and give us the heart that he designed us for? Or do we go backwards in our regression to a heart of stone, a heart that is calloused, a heart that is hard towards God? When God comes into our hearts and he points his light at something and he wants us to deal with something, it's very important we make the right decision. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I think the word of God, we call it the Bible. It's so much more than just the Bible. 
The word of God is the primary way God wants to speak to us in our lives. It's not the only way. In fact, one of the areas I'm hoping to grow in and continue to grow in is God speaking to me at all times. That's been my focus for this 90-day journey is prayer and, and letting God speak to me and not just talking to, to God, but letting him speak to me and through me. That's been what I'm focusing on this 90 days. But 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, 19 through 21, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. As I was praying this last week, I had a couple of weird things that God seemed to put on my mind, and I'm not going to share them with you because you will actually think I'm insane if I share them with you. Um, So I'm not going to do that. But what my responsibility is, is when God speaks to me, is I take it then to God's word and test it. Does this line up with God's word? Is this, is this in accordance with anything that God has said in scripture? Is there a connection that, that this fits in this category or is this completely outside of God's word? So I have to test everything and there are other ways we can test it, but I don't have time to get into that this morning. So God wants to speak to us through his word and Jesus was the embodiment of the word. So Jesus came, and so that's one of the reasons we pay so much special attention to Jesus, because Jesus was the word became flesh. It was God's voice that spoke and became a living thing that we could hear, that we could see, that we could touch. And so God sent his word in the form of his son, Jesus. And what he wants to do is through Christ, he wants to speak truth into our lives, and he wants us to pay special attention to that word that he sends to us through Christ for one reason— Belief in the promise. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. What is the rebellion? For the next few minutes, I just want to walk you through quickly the story of the rebellion. So I invite you to kind of turn your mind into listening. I know you're already listening, but listening in the story of the Old Testament and kind of put yourself in the position, in the situation that this is taking place back in the day. So remember what has happened. God has called Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, and, and he brought the ten plagues, these miraculous signs that attacked one of, each, each attacked a god of Egypt and, and just totally destroyed and demolished them. And then God brought the people out of Egypt in the Passover. He saved the firstborn children of Israel and killed all the firstborn of all living things of Egypt. And then he brought the people out and then they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground, right? God split the sea and his people walked through on dry ground. And then as, as the Egyptian army tried to come and follow God's people, God just brought the waves down and in one literal action, one fell swoop, God destroyed the entire Egyptian army. And then, then they go out into the wilderness and they go out as they're traveling through the wilderness and, they, and Moses goes up on this mountain and they can hear the voice of God speaking to Moses on the, on the mountain and they're terrified. And then they continue wandering through the wilderness till they get to this point in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 where they're, where they're about to go into Canaan, go into the promised land, go into God's rest. And this is where we pick up the story. Numbers 13, where God told Moses... Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And so Moses sent Joshua and Caleb, 
along with ten other spies into the promised land to investigate the territory and see what they would be up against. It took the spies 40 days to go in and explore and investigate everything. After being gone 40 days, the spies come back. And we read later in chapter 13 that 10 out of the 12 spies didn't believe God's promise. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, this went up with Joshua. They said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we certainly looked the same to them. That night... All the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to... Go back to Egypt. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through is and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the things I have performed among them? This is the rebellion Having seen all the signs that God had already performed, it should have been somewhat easy, fairly simple, for the Israelites to believe that God would also give them the land and conquer it for them. I mean, he had, after all, just defeated a very powerful Egyptian army with the waves. But not only did they not believe in God, they wanted to revolt against God. They wanted to put God's people to death by stoning Moses and Aaron. They wanted to stone Moses and Aaron and choose a new leader and go back to where they came from. 
They wanted to go back to what was familiar. See, we are obedient to our beliefs. And the people, the Israelites, were obedient to what they believed. And they did not believe God. They believed they would die if they tried to take the land. So they started to revolt. They were afraid. They were filled with fear. Because the ten spies only saw with their eyes. They were afraid because the ten spies only saw with their eyes. And we also tend to doubt when we see only with our eyes. But Joshua and Caleb, they saw the land through their belief in God and their hearts. They saw the land as though something had already been done, as though the land had already been given to them. And they said, if God is with us, there's nothing they can do to stop us. The ten spies saw only with their eyes. Joshua and Caleb saw through belief in their hearts. See, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the point of dividing soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. It calls into question anything in our hearts that is not in line with belief in God. God had called his people to a life that they weren't able to secure in their own power. God had made a promise to Abraham and he was going to fulfill it in his strength and in his power. They weren't going to have to secure their own victory. But to be able to enter the land would require complete dependence on the one true God. This was a test. Would the people believe God no matter what? Would they follow his lead? Would they go where God said to go even when the odds are heavily stacked against them? I don't know if you've ever seen a nine-foot-tall person, but a country full of nine-foot-tall people might be a little terrifying if you're the one that has to go in and conquer them. And if God tells you to go in and conquer this people, and they're all bigger than you, stronger than you, you're probably going to maybe doubt a little bit, right? I mean, when we look with our eyes, we're going to see, oh, there, there is something very different. I don't think we can do it. God was testing them. Would they stand in the face of actual, literal giants and believe that God would knock them down? God had given them a promise and it required their belief. But belief requires us to see beyond what is seen to the unseen. Belief requires us to see beyond what we can see with our eyes to what is unseen, what we can only see in our hearts. And so the people of God had to choose between faith and the unseen, faith like Abraham who could see the fulfillment of the promise even though in his current existence he only had the one son. But he still believed. He believed in the promise. 
Can he see, can he choose faith? Or does he need to go back to doing things his own way? The people of God had to choose between faith and familiarity. And they chose familiarity. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to the slavery they knew. They were even ready to elect a new leader and stone the old leaders, put them to death, so that they could go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to what was familiar, even though it was slavery, even though they were whining and complaining about the conditions that they were living under. They wanted to go back to what they were familiar with instead of using faith to see what God wanted to give them. And they hardened their hearts. And so God kept that whole generation from entering the promised land. Which brings us to our next problem. Faith or familiarity. We say, we would never do that. If we had seen God do these amazing things, if we had been out where we had seen him bring the waves down on the people and all the plagues and all that stuff, if we had seen God do all of these things, we, even though it looks impossible, it looks difficult, we know because we remember the waves that uh, he can do what he says he's going to do. But God has given us a greater promise what the, the author of Hebrews is saying and has already established in the first part of the letter. His, his, the new promise, the new salvation that has been given to us in Jesus Christ far exceeds the old promise, so we have this greater promise, and yet we constantly choose familiarity over faith, don't we? For being honest with ourselves. Don't we constantly go back to what is familiar instead of into the future God has for us in faith? I mean, just think, ask yourself this question. This last week, were there any moments where you chose familiarity over faith? I did. Were there any times over this last week where instead of embracing faith and going into God's future with faith in your heart, we chose to go back to familiarity? I've done that. I, I do that. So what do we do? I mean, in these chapters, the author has really emphasized the importance of holding firmly to our original convictions, holding firmly to the promise that has been given us in Christ Jesus. And and we want to be that kind of people. We desperately want to be the people who have our eyes permanently fixed on Jesus and the work that he did, like we talked about last week. And as he sits there on the shore with the finished promise, we just want to have our total gaze fixed entirely on Jesus. We want to be that kind of person. I want to be that kind of person. We, We make every effort to enter the rest. But despite our efforts and our desires, we still at times choose doubt and disobedience. So what do we do? What do we do with this? I mean, this seems like, it just seems impossible. It seems unrealistic. We want to obey, but that's not the only problem. Obedience is not the only problem. We want to believe, but that's also not the only problem. How? How do we be the kind of people that believe and obey? Hebrews 3, verse 12. It says, see to it, brothers and sisters. That's us, by the way. That's you and me in Christ. For all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are the brothers and sisters he's talking to. See to it, 6-8. 
that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But how? Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We come to share in Christ. This word share is also mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. This word share is another one of those words that can be used in a nautical sense. It means comrades. It means the people that you're in the journey with. It's comrades in the heavenly calling, right? A comrade is a companion who shares one's activities or is a fellow member of an organization. That's what a comrade is. So to share then in this heavenly calling is to be a comrade in the calling. Back to Numbers chapter 13, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with Joshua said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they, the ten spies that didn't believe, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. The message the Israelites heard, we can take the land. This is the promise that has been given to us. The land has been given to you. This, this message that they've heard was of no value to them. That's what the author of Hebrews says. The promise was of no value because they were not comrades in the faith with those who obeyed like Joshua and Caleb were. The ten spies who didn't believe were comrades in their doubts. They shared in the rebellion and led the Israelites to rebel. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves, if we want to obey, if we want to believe, we have to ask, who are our comrades? Do we have companions who share in our heavenly calling active in our lives? Do we have people around us who are sharing in this heavenly calling with us? Or do we have more companions who share in our rebellion or our rebellious calling? See, there were 12 spies who, ex who went in and explored the land, but we only ever remember two of them. Which two do you remember? Joshua and Caleb, right? Does anyone remember Shemua? Not Shamu, but Shemua. Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, or Geuel, Geuel, I don't know. Do you remember those guys? No. We remember Joshua and Caleb. We remember the ones who believed. In fact, it was Joshua who would eventually be the one to lead them into the promised land. But 
But these ten spies, when they got back, they started to spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They were comrades of the rebellion. They had a message, but it wasn't good news. They were sharing bad news. They were sharing the worst case scenario. They were not sharing from a position of faith and belief. They were sharing from a position of doubt and unbelief. And so when they shared their message, they spread it among the people. We can't do this. This is not possible. Three twelve. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We come together on Sundays and we really want to be, when we're gathered together, the kind of people that follow God all day, every day. But then we get outside of this place and we're not connected with as many believers who are encouraging us daily, day in, day out. And we get hardened by sin's deceitfulness because that's the voice we hear so much of in our day-to-day lives. It says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Has anyone said anything about today? Today is today. Today, today, today. Why? So that we won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness because sin's deceitfulness creeps in and it's what we know and it's what we're used to and it's the familiarity, what calls us back into what we are already familiar with, but that's not what God has for us. He has something so much different for us and, and the only way for us to get towards the calling to, is to get with people who share in the calling and to have comrades who, who are walking alongside us in the calling and as we just take our tiny little baby steps forward towards the calling, we have people who are walking with us and they're believing with us and they're encouraging with us and we're going through this process together towards the calling because we're comrades. We are not in it by ourselves. But how many of us faced discouragement this last week? I did. I get discouraged from time to time. Let me share with you an example. According to every commonly used metric in church circles, when it comes to being a pastor, I am a massive failure. The metrics every church uses to gauge whether or not things are working are attendance and finances. These are the two visible measurements that churches use to gauge their success. And when I'm around other pastors, most of the conversation tends to drift towards addressing attendance or finances. The stress of attendance, are are people attending? Are we growing in attendance? Do we have more people attending our church? And the stress of finances, do we have enough money to do what we want to do? And the pastors who have a lot of people and a lot of money are seen as successful and are consequently elevated to positions of greater influence in the kingdom. And the pastors who don't are failures and have little to no voice in the church at large. According to the metrics our church culture uses to gauge success, I'm a failure. And sometimes that discourages me. 
Sometimes it makes me think about quitting. Wondering, asking the question, why do you have me here? Certainly there's someone who could be more successful than me. I get discouraged. But when I'm with us, when I'm here on a Sunday morning, when, when I'm with you all, when we're here together and worshiping together, I, I see so many incredible signs that God is on the move. I, I feel so much how God is moving in our midst. I, I experience how God is miraculously drawing us closer and closer into his presence and away from the things that we have been stuck in for so long. I, and I just feel the sense of God is at work in the people of 6-8. God is at work in our church community. But when I'm not around the people of 6-8 and I'm with people who look at things from a different vantage point, when I'm in the presence of the wrong people who are looking at things with the wrong eyes, it's easy for me not to believe. I think what we need, what I need, maybe this message is all for me and you're just sitting here listening to me give myself some therapy. I don't know. I think what we need is we need new comrades. We need new metrics. We need new comrades and new metrics. We need people who are speaking into our lives. We need people who are speaking truth into our lives, who are shining the light of God's truth into our lives, who also happen to be companions on the journey, who are comrades arm in arm on the journey, taking baby steps forward together, not sure of what the future looks like, not sure what it's going to be like when we get there, but knowing that God has called us forward to something and he has not called us to go back into what's familiar. He's called us by faith into new uncharted waters and we're going to walk together arm in arm towards this new journey because when you walk with people who have faith, you have faith. When you walk with people who doubt, you get doubt. We walk, we need comrades who share in the same calling. And Not only do we need to be encouraged daily, because I think everyone in this room would say, I need to be encouraged every day. I need someone to encourage me every day. That's part of why we do what we're doing, so that we can, as a church, encourage you in your walk every single day as you're walking with Jesus. It's, it's so that you can come to know Jesus. This isn't trying to get you to follow my system or to do my thing. The whole motive of everything we're doing is so that you know Jesus more on a day-in, day-out basis. I know we need to be encouraged daily, but we also need to encourage one another daily. See, the way we keep from being hardened by sin's deceitfulness is by encouraging one another daily. It's not just receiving encouragement, but it's being an encourager. I encourage the people around me because we have the same calling. We have the same future. We have the same vision for where God is calling us and moving us forward. So I'm going to encourage you and you're going to encourage me. And together we're going to encourage one another towards the journey and away from the familiarity. Who encouraged you this week? Who are your comrades in the faith? Who did you encourage this week? 
to whom are you a comrade? We need some new comrades. We need new metrics. We need to stop just looking at measuring the things that we can see. In my case, looking at attendance and finances are visible measurements. That's what we can see with our eyes. It's what we can put our hands on. But is that enough? See, the ten spies who explored the land, they could only see with their eyes that the people were bigger than they were. And the land devours the people who live in it and that all the people are of great size. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and to them as well. And if we're looking at our own lives, whatever the metric might be in your life, we tend to only focus on and look at the visible things we can measure. We need to start learning to measure what can't be seen. Because belief is a work of the heart. And you can't see the heart. Belief is a work of the heart. You can't see our hearts at first. Over time, we begin to see the evidence that God is working in someone's heart by seeing the obedience shift. We can start to see the change and transformation in someone's heart because we start to see a desire and the effort to walk in a different way. It's hard to see someone's heart, but we can start to see evidence of the change after the change is starting to take place because our actions demonstrate what we actually believe. And right now, if you look at that metric in our church, we're killing it. I mean, like, we are just literally on this awesome, amazing, constructive, not destructive, constructive path towards God's future for our church. And that metric, we're off the charts. When you look at that, it's like, man, this is, this is an, an amazing, incredible church that, that, that I just, I cannot help but want to be a part of. And I, I don't just want to be a part of it for me, but I know that God has called me towards something. And I want to be here for you and for you and for you. I want to be here for the journey of the community together. So I'm currently looking for new metrics. I can see that God is working. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is at work in our church. I see it every Sunday when we're gathered together. I see it on workplace. I hear it in our discussions. I hear it in secondhand discussions. And just like the 10 spies who spread a bad report about the land, I am now starting to hear good reports about what God is doing in our lives. Why? Because when you're around people who believe, around people who are living out their belief and obedience, you're more likely to become a person of belief. When you're around people who don't believe and are living out their belief in the rebellion, you're more likely to become a person of unbelief. So who are we becoming? If we're becoming more and more of a believer, we're probably spending time with the right people. If we struggle to make forward progress as we grow closer to God, we're probably kind of right there in between where we just have enough old, flu- old influence and new influence. And if we're constantly struggling and being pulled back into the old familiarity, we probably have too many people in our lives that are pulling us backwards into old unbelief and rebellion. We become like the people we spend time with. So do the people in your life, in my life, do the people in our lives challenge us to grow in our walk with God? 
Do the people in our lives lovingly call us out on our junk? That's an important part. Do the people in your life model faith? Do the people in your life challenge your assumptions? Do the people in your life root for you to win? Do the people in your life help you learn from your failures? Do the people in your life share new insights that they have in their walk with God with you to encourage you? And at the same time, do the people in your life share their doubts and struggles so that you can encourage them? So we've said all this time that the devil's two primary tactics are ideas and isolation. If he can get you by yourself, mulling over a bad idea, he wins. So if we want to beat the devil, we've got to do the opposite. We need to not be by ourselves. We need to be with comrades of the faith and not mulling over bad ideas, but bringing the doubts and struggles into the light of God's truth, letting him illuminate them so that they can be dealt with for good. Our big idea this week. To become someone whose actions line up with faith in Jesus' calling, I need to be with comrades who echo the same calling. For me to become someone whose actions line up with faith in Jesus' calling, I need to be with comrades who echo the same calling. We need to start paying attention to who has influence in our lives. We become like the people we spend time with. It's not just something that scripture teaches. It's also a scientific discovery that's been made. Science has proven that we become like, literally become like the people we spend time with. This is something scripture has known for thousands of years and science is catching up to the data. But we become like the people we spend time with. So are we with people who are helping us in the calling? To become someone whose actions line up with faith in Jesus' calling, I need to be with comrades who echo that same calling. Our weekly identity statement is, I intentionally surround myself with and daily encourage comrades in the calling. This is who I am in Christ. This is who Christ has made me to be. Christ has made me to be in community with other believers and to be an encourager in that community. And if we're all encouraging one another in the community, everyone will be encouraged in the community. We don't see it as something we come to get for ourselves, but something we come to give. We don't just show up at church to get for ourselves encouragement, but we show up on Sundays to give encouragement. We don't just show up on workplace to receive encouragement, but we show up on workplace to give encouragement because we are comrades in the calling, the heavenly calling that God has called us towards out in the future that we are moving towards on a constant basis. I intentionally surround myself with and daily encourage comrades in the calling. 412, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. 